open your Bibles to John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 36 through 40 and then we'll pray. John chapter 6, verses 36 through 40, and then we'll pray. Let's begin with verse 35. It helps us with some context. Verse 35. I love to hear the pages of your Bibles turning. That's a really good sign. And I never mind waiting to hear those pages turn. So don't feel bad. If you're searching for a book in the Bible and you can't find it, it's okay. Just keep searching. You'll get there, all right? John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as we have been able to read and hear your word read, to pray the truths of your word and to sing the truths of your word. We now come and give thanks and ask mercy for a time of the preaching of your word. All of worship is glorious and in certain ways is illuminating of your truth. And yet, while the word is preached, we are in need of your Holy Spirit to illumine the truth of your word to our souls. Lord, I know some among us have heard some of these truths preached numerous times in the last 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I pray they would be encouraged today. And these truths would be glorious to them all the more. Some have heard these truths preached very little. Some not at all. Will you grow them? Strengthen them? By the power of your spirit, give them grace to see and know and understand and to be encouraged. Most of all, grow in us a patience to trust in the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
We come to this time of the year, and for a few churches across the world, and I use the word a few because when we think about the whole of the world, most churches are not thinking about the historic Reformation period in the early 1500s. I, I know this because I, I grew up in a Baptist context to where I never heard anything about the Reformation until I was taught about the sovereignty of God and salvation. I never heard anybody give thanks for what God had done in His grace through reviving the truths of salvation in such a way that Protestant churches would be formed. And they would be formed on a basis and a foundation of the biblical truths of God's sovereignty and salvation. I don't ever remember hearing in all of my years of Sunday school and growing up in a Southern Baptist church one time someone have a lengthy statement about Martin Luther, the reformer. I don't even ever remember hearing John Calvin's name brought up. I remember hearing the word Calvinism in a very negative light a few times, but that was only for two or three people, and you could tell they had great disdain for that term Calvinism. I don't remember hearing about the man John Knox who God raised up. And I certainly never heard of John Owen, Thomas Manton, Thomas Watson. I never heard of men like Hansard Knowles, Benjamin Keach, Benjamin Bedon great Baptists of the faith in the post-Reformation period. And sadly, that means that the church has missed out on some of the greatest truths that uphold us as believers. It was approximately this time of year, just a day from now, that this struggling monk in the Roman Catholic Church, who had been struggling for years, he had been struggling with the weight of his sin. He knew he was a sinner. He knew that there was something really, really wrong with him before God, and he could not get his conscience settled. Everywhere he turned, all he felt was the weight of his sin. He searched for relief from the weight of that sin. He searched for the forgiveness of the debt of that sin. He saw God as only this great ogre who was out to get him. And he couldn't grovel enough. He couldn't clean enough floors. He couldn't get before God and do enough things to be righteous. Everywhere he turned, he just saw this great weight and debt of sin. 
He searched for this forgiveness time and time and time again. History records that he spent hours in the proverbial prayer closet trying to get the weight of his sin and find forgiveness, that weight taken off and to find that forgiveness. He spent hours before the priest of his uh, local church, the priest of his, his teaching, trying to get absolution for his sin, going in there with the most, what was called the most menial of things. He searched to have a hope, a hope in future grace without sin. He was searching because he could not find hope for his past, he could not find hope for his present, and he could not find hope for his future because all he saw and all he knew was the weight of his sin. When we think about the term grace alone, we can see in Martin Luther the reason that grace alone is so important. In his life, he explains through this search the importance of God's grace to sinners. I think sometimes we miss how hard he worked to try to find some hope in the midst of all his sin. I think sometimes that's because we think so little of ours. The whole need for grace is established in the very fact of our sin against God and the sin of unbelief. That unbelief of who God is and what he has done through his son. Some months ago, I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine and he was kind of walking through this sermon series he had done called Grace in One Place. I stole the title of his sermon series for this message. He did a whole series on these verses out of John chapter 6, weeks of it. And as I began to consider all the things he had said and look at it, I thought this is a great Reformation idea. Grace in one place. Just about everything the Reformation stood for is found in these verses. And certainly everything about grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is found in these verses. Maybe not in its most explicit terms and its greatest explanations, but they are found 
in some sense right here. Our Lord Jesus had come to a time of teaching his disciples. He had walked on the water. They were astounded by what the Lord Jesus had done. And he's continuing to be peppered with questions. And in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Even some of the people following the Lord Jesus from town to town, they were not understanding the importance of God's grace to sinners. They were still looking through this lens of works-based righteousness that they could somehow make themselves worthy to enter before God if they would just do these things rightly by their own power, by their own sheer will. They had not come to see the serious weight of their sin that they had absolutely nothing to offer God. There was nothing they could take before him if they were even allowed to enter before him in his presence. If he just even allowed them to come before him, there's nothing they could take to him and say, here it is, God, look at what I've done. Now I'm worthy. They were still trying to find security in themselves. And Jesus was saying to them, no, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But in verse 36, he wraps up this whole issue by saying, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. He's saying, here's the weight of your sin. You've been confronted with all of these truths. You've even seen the very Messiah himself, and yet you do not believe. Now, how could you go before God and say, look at my righteousness, when the Messiah has been presented to you right there in your face, and you cannot and will not believe in him? Jesus got to the very core of their heart when he says to them, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You got your belly full of bread, and so therefore you thought, oh, this is great. But you're not understanding. You need more than a belly full of bread. You need someone who will deal with your very sin before God. You need an everlasting bread. You need the bread of life. The sin of unbelief is the greatest sin we could ever imagine. And it's still a battle even for the believer. 
There are times that we walk in unbelief of God's promises because we're not living in light of those promises. But there is one thing we cannot do in our unbelief, and that is deny who God is and who his son is that he has sent. That denial is the greatest. When Jesus comes to the end of this message, he gives a perspective on God's grace that is so enlightening that at the time it would have just it would have just laid these people low because they would have not a real understanding unless the Lord God himself had dealt with their souls. In verse 37, the Lord Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Number one this morning, Jesus declared the gracious gift of the Heavenly Father. Jesus declared the gracious gift of the Heavenly Father. Now you're going to find this morning that I'm not going to give you a lot of quotes. There are times that I give you quite a few quotes. I'm not going to do that this morning. It's not because I haven't read anything. I've read so much stuff over a period of time. Um, These are not original thoughts. So that's just a disclaimer for anybody who wants to know. But you're going to find that you could go to many solid-thinking pastors in history and find the context for these things in their writings as well. So I'm not going to say to you necessarily something new, but I'm going to say a lot of things to you that I hope you will grab hold of. And firstly and foremost, you need to see that Jesus declared the gracious gift of the Heavenly Father. What is that gift? Number one, that gift is a people. That gift is a people. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now the all there can't be referring to creation at large because it makes no sense in context. The all there is referring to people. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. First of all, it's a gift of the people, but it's a gift that will not be turned away. There's something to be said about these people, the ones that will be given. These are the ones who will believe. They'll be enabled to believe. If you go back and you read John chapter 3 and you understand what is being said, Nicodemus is dealing with the idea of what it means to be born again. The Lord Jesus explains to him to be born again is the very work of the Spirit and we know not where the Spirit moves. We know not where the Spirit goes. It's like the wind. All we see is the effects of it. These people that are given, they will not be turned away because they believe. They believe in the very Son of God. They believe in who He is and what He did and what He is doing. 
They believe that he is God. They believe that he is deity. He is Jehovah. They believe that he came and he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death. They believe he's been raised from the dead on the third day. They believe he ascended to be with the Father and he's still living and reigning today. They believe he walked in human flesh, sinless human flesh. That's why they won't be turned away. Because they were given by the Father, and upon being given by the Father, the Father did a work in them, and the Father in doing that work in them, he completes the work. And upon completing the work, not one of them will be lost. Not only is it a gift that will not be turned away, but it's a gift that will not be returned. Do you see here the workings between the Father and the Son? The Father gives this people to the Son. Not only will they not be cast out, not only will they not be turned away, but Jesus doesn't return them to the Father in the sense of saying, I don't want them. When he does return them to the Father, he gives them to the Father in John chapter 17 in such a way as to say, here, I've done the work which you gave me to do with them. Now I am entrusting them to you as I go to complete this work and finish it out. But Jesus doesn't take the gift. And return it to the Father and say, I don't want them. When the Father gives them, He receives them and He receives them gladly. And not one of them will be cast out or turned away. We see an activity here that tells us something about grace grace is eternal. Think about what Martin Luther was looking for. Martin Luther was looking for something that was not just grace for a moment. He didn't need just grace for the day. He needed something that was long-lasting, something that was everlasting, because he needed the weight of his sin taken away completely. Jesus is declaring that the grace of God is an eternal grace. It's not just a grace in one moment. It's not just a grace for one time. It's a grace for all time. Some people take grace so lightly they're only looking at salvation for the moment. I feel really bad about my sin right now and I need God's grace right now. No, you need it every day, all the time. You need an eternal grace. This is why the Father's work before the beginning of time, all that the Father gives me will come to me. When did He give them to the Son? Before the foundation of the world. That's when He gave them to the Son, before the foundation of the world. There was such an agreement between the Father and the Son that there was no way that the gift of this people would be turned away by the Son. And that means there's in no way 
or there is no way that those people will be turned away in all of eternity because it's an eternal grace. It's an eternal grace. It tells us something about grace coming from the very being of God. See, we often think about grace as something that God gives to us. In some sense, we've done something to earn it or gain it by what we did. But what Jesus is speaking about here is a grace that we have absolutely no, nothing in us that deserves it. We have no way to gain it. It's, it's the gift that is absolutely so far beyond us, we could never, never apprehend it or comprehend it in its fullness. That's what makes it grace. It's something we don't deserve. We can't gain it. We don't merit it. God the Father had to do something before the beginning of time or else no one would be saved. He had to choose a people before the beginning of time. He had to give them to the Son before the foundation of the world. They had to be this offering and covenant to the Son. That's the only way that we know for sure that the people would be procured. They would be kept. They would not be cast out. But not only did this work happen before the foundation of the world as a gift of the Heavenly Father to the Son, but number two, Jesus declared the gracious gift of his incarnation. Number one, Jesus declared the gracious gift of the Heavenly Father. Number two, Jesus declared the gracious gift of his incarnation. In verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven. He's speaking here of his incarnation, being born of the Virgin Mary. He's speaking of the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, putting the seed in her womb that Matthew speaks of early in his gospel. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This gracious gift of his incarnation is to tell us plainly what was said in Luke's gospel. Firstly, he came to dwell among us. He came to dwell among us. The Hebrews writer gives us all kinds of context to that. He dwelt among us, among us in sinless flesh. So far, is Jesus teaching anything where he's telling us, here's what you can contribute to the grace of God? So far, has he come to a place that he's offering to us any steps that, he can, that we can say, well, here's what I can contribute to grace? So far, all he's told us is about the very work of the one true living God in three persons, blessed Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. And he's insinuating the very work of the Spirit. He says, for I've come down out of heaven. He came to dwell among us. He walked and he lived and he dwelled among them. He did all of these signs and wonders so that people would know, here's the Messiah. 
the whole work of redemption is being played out. That which was promised in the old covenant is being played out before the eyes of the Jews. They were seeing it right there. And Jesus says, you've seen it. You've seen me. You've seen my works. You've seen what happened. And yet you do not believe. You're just here because your tummies are full. Jesus said, I didn't come to fill your tummies so that you could have lots of bread and be warm and be filled and take a long nap. I came to accomplish the very work of grace established by my Father before time began. How was he going to establish that? What did it mean that he dwelt among us? He says, I can't, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to do the will of the Father. In every single way. If you only think Jesus came to this earth to kind of help some people out or make the earth a little better place or let's solve world poverty or let's solve this problem or that problem, if that's your basis of salvation, you've missed the whole point. There are tons of people across history who have not had very much food to eat, but they heard the gospel and they believed and the Lord God saved them and gave them the bread of life. And they may never have had the kind of food we've had, but they will be in the kingdom of heaven when many tummy-full Americans will not be. It doesn't mean that we can't help people. It doesn't mean we can't be gracious. It just means the point of the gospel, first and foremost, is God's grace to sinners for salvation. Salvation from the very weight and debt of their sin the very guilt of their sin, that guilt that Martin Luther lived with and struggled with for years. What's great about the working of the Father and the Son is not only does he say they won't be cast out, but none of them are going to be lost. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Think about it for a minute. If you and I can't do anything to earn our way into the kingdom of heaven, if I can't go to God and give God a list, God, Brandon Smith, here's my list. I did A, B, C, D, E, F, G while I was on the earth. And these things were all good. And oh yeah, I've got a list over here that was bad. But I want you to compare those two lists, God, and see that I really did more good things than I did bad things. If God says enter into my kingdom based on my list, then who's in control of salvation and what is grace? That's not grace at all. That's me proving to God that I'm worthy to be in his kingdom. Based on what I did, who I am, who I think I am. The Reformation restored a whole thinking of salvation that had been forced into the background 
of a man-based religion that said, come to God and plead before Him and show Him how good you are by doing penance. No. All the stuff that Paul unfolds for us in his letters, he's just unfolding these verses in great detail and in great work. The Lord Jesus is telling us is that salvation is by God's grace alone. It has nothing to do with us. Why? Because the Father gave them. The Son receives them. He's not going to cast them out. Instead, He's going to come to this earth. He says, here I am. I did it. I'm not here to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing. He came to dwell among us. He came to do the will of the Father. He came so that the gift would not be lost. It puts into context some of the parables. The parable of the great pearl. The pearl of price. Wouldn't you just sell everything to have that great pearl? been given a gift that just really meant a lot to you? Maybe it was a family member or a parent or a friend. They just, somebody gave you a gift that was just a, a very thoughtful gift. It had some worth to it, whether it was worldly worth or just personal worth, but they gave it to you. And then maybe you, you misplaced it or you lost it. If you've ever been there, you know what kind of frantic state that puts someone in. Some years ago, I'd given Beth a gift, and she just loved it, and I was excited because she loved it so much. And then one day, I just saw that she was just really frantic. At first, she didn't really want to tell me why she was so frantic. But then she told me that this gift, she had misplaced it or lost it and she couldn't find it. And it meant so much to her. She searched all over the house, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. We searched together, couldn't find it. And then she found it. And it was like, huge relief the Lord Jesus never goes through that type of mentality because he will never lose any one of those that were given to him there's never a frantic moment in the Godhead there's never a frantic moment in Christ himself that maybe one of his people might be lost, that he would lose the very gift of the Father. This is how secure God's grace is, eternally secure it is, that Jesus can say, of all the gift, I will lose nothing. 
In a reverse sense, the illustration shows to us what it must have been like for Martin Luther to have come to see and know the very grace of God in such a way that the weight and the debt of his sin was lifted and taken away. And for him to know on his dying day that no matter what happened to his body, because Jesus would lose none of the gift that the Father gave him, then he was secure and would not be lost. See, this is what an eternal grace does. This is what the gift of grace does. It's God's grace, not our merit. He gives the gift of his grace to sinners. He saves them. It's by his work that sinners are saved through the person and work of his Son. Sometimes I have great concern when I see people think little of God's grace. I have even greater concern when I see it in my own mind and heart. Thirdly, this morning, Jesus declared the gracious gift of eternal grace. Jesus declared the gracious gift of the Heavenly Father. Jesus declared the gracious gift of his incarnation. And Jesus declared the gracious gift of eternal grace. Verse 40 says, for this is the will of my Father. It's kind of a restatement that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on that last day. Firstly, eternal grace is necessary for any hope of eternal life. If there's momentary grace, if it's just an influential grace for the moment, it's not eternal. And therefore, you can't have eternal life. And Jesus is promising eternal life. This is one of the great promises of the gospel, is eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, with God, with God the Son, forever and ever, everlasting, that one will be in this eternal place of peace. There will be no more sin, no more tears, no more heartache, no more frustration, no more hurt. You could see why Martin Luther would have been so waning and struggling because he looked at the world around him and what did he see? Did he see eternal hope in the world? Did he see eternal hope in himself? Do you get up every day and you're just just the, the bastion of kindness to everyone around you? You just wake up and the alarm clock went off and you just look around at everybody. God be blessed. It's so wonderful to see you all. Oh, Lord, it's a great day. Is that what you do? Most of us, we roll out of the bed. Our eyes are bleary. Our breath smells bad. 
We start to try to clear our mind of what might happen in the day. It doesn't take us very long to where we've made some comment we shouldn't have. My eggs are cold. My coffee's not good enough. This didn't happen. That didn't happen. I began to think about what I might have to do to deal with this situation or that situation. And that's all before before I even get started, right? I can't have any hope in myself. I can't have hope in you all as much as I love you. You're made out of the same sinful flesh that I am. My hope for God's grace is not based in what you're going to do. I know my own mind and heart, and I can't believe that other people in this church, in this place, don't have their own struggles with their own sin and their own mind. I'm ashamed of the things that I think, much less of what you think and I don't even know. If there's any hope, for the future, it has to be in God's grace alone. Because God's grace alone is eternal grace. And it's not just a future grace that God's going to deal with something in some future way to make everything better and everybody sings kumbaya together. No, this grace is eternal in the whole of its existence. Eternity past, present, and future. It's the whole of the order of salvation. God the Father giving a gift. God the Son receiving that gift. God the Spirit applying the work of that grace to sinners that they are enabled to believe. Dead sinners brought to life in Christ Jesus. And that eternal grace is revealed and shown through that very work of the Spirit that there are many who are repenting and believing in the Son of God. I think I was really struck these last few weeks as we had some of these missionaries in once again to hear them talk about what was going on. To think in a place like Cuba where there's so many restrictions put on their life by an outside agency. You're given basically tickets or tokens as to what you can go buy at the grocery store and that's all you can get is with what you're given with those tickets and those tokens. And yet, in a circumstance like that, there are people repenting and believing in the Son of God. Not because their bellies are getting full, but because they are seeing their sin for what it is against God. And they are believing that God alone, through His eternal grace, saves sinners. 
And they're believing that he has done so through the very person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus. And they went to bed that night without a full tummy. And yet, by God's grace, they believed. They believed. And they keep on believing. This gracious gift of eternal grace finishes the race to the end. In two places, verse 39 and verse 40, Jesus says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. This grace is so eternal it is so gripping that not even an earthly death a bodily death putting a body in the ground can separate someone from the God who saved them. We talked about the glorified state a couple of weeks ago. You realize what an amazing thing it is that God will raise dead bodies up. And upon the return of his son, raising them up. And upon the judgment and the work of God, he will accomplish a work to give glorified bodies to sinners. First of all, that God raises the dead is amazing in itself. Think about it. I mean, we look at death, and honestly, if you're paying attention when you go to a funeral home, if you're paying attention, it looks pretty grim and final, doesn't it? I mean, pay attention. Young people, you need to go to a funeral home when your mother or father goes. You need to see that body laying in that casket. You need to look at it and recognize this is what's happening. Your body is decaying. All of us will be there one day, even if caskets aren't still available in the United States. We will have a dead body laying somewhere. Looks pretty grim and final. I don't know if you've noticed. They can put all the makeup on it they want to. And perfume and everything else they want to do looks pretty fine, final and grim. Jesus says, you know what? I myself will raise him up on the last day. I'll do it. When I return, that's... What I'm going to do, this is going to be an eternal grace that finishes the race to the end. And I'm going to raise these dead bodies up. And I will lose not one of them. I want to leave you with just three thoughts. Unbelief regards not only who God is, but what he commanded. When someone says to you they don't believe in God, they're also saying to you, I don't believe in what he commanded. 
Yeah, I don't believe in God. That's not that big of a deal. I mean, he's kind of imaginary, he's fictitious, and I don't believe in him. They're also saying to you, I don't believe in what he commanded. They're saying, I can do whatever I want to do when I want to do it, and nobody will hold me accountable. That's a bad place to be. That's why unbelief is so sinful and so awful. You also need to understand that unbelief and partial belief are no different. There's a lot of people walking around today with some kind of partial belief, but it's no different than unbelief. You need to believe in the whole of God's grace. If we ever come to a place to think that we can give God something in order to make ourselves worthy to be before him, we've missed it. And even the most free will thinking person in the moment of their salvation, and there are plenty of them out there and many of us were among those, but in the moment of their salvation, it's God doing the work and they know it. They may only know it for three seconds. But if God saves any person, it doesn't matter the theological background. If he genuinely saves them and they come to a right understanding of who Christ is and what he did, it's God working in them through his son by the power of the spirit. God doing it. That's an eternal grace. Lastly, Unbelief renders one hopeless. Unbelief renders one hopeless. You want to know why the world looks so hopeless? It's because of unbelief. Too many across this globe are trying to tell us how great they are. Too many of us as humans are so self-centered and self-serving. The only hope that we have in all of life is the hope of God's eternal grace. By grace alone we're saved, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what lifted the weight of that monk's sin, was God's grace alone to sinners. Let's give thanks. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful. For just a moment in this day that we could glory in the truth of your word. We pray that the spirit will do work according to these truths and that you alone will gain the glory from anything that has been said that is worthy of the truth of your word. As we come to the time of your table, may we thoughtfully think through the truths that have been spoken. And may we come to this table thinking of that great gift of your eternal grace to us as sinners. That we would walk in repentance, being repenting repenters. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.